Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and enabling biotechs to build on-demand teams. Check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome James Pyre, founder and CEO of Cambrian Bio. Thanks so much for joining us today, James. Rahul, thanks for having me. Awesome, James. So to kick us off, would love to hear how you got interested in biotech and the arc of your career. Sure. So happy to just dive right in. I got interested in biology really early. So I was a teenager, about 14, something like this, and my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. And that was the first time that the reality of our medical system kind of hit me full on in the face. And I became fascinated with cancer biology. How did cancer happen? How were the tools that we had so completely insufficient to deal with this disease? And then especially what struck me is how someone who was elderly, because when he got cancer, he was in his mid-80s, how the system basically just said, oh, yeah, like this is a person whose time is to die now. And the system basically forgot or ignored and had no optimism about his treatment or his recovery. And I felt like there was such a wrong there that I wanted to do something about it because it was kind of the ultimate destiny for all of us in our upside scenarios, right? If we don't get hit by a bus along the way, getting cancer in our 80s after living a good life is like a life well lived. And it's still a really shitty way to go. And so I got fascinated with originally oncology, but then that spread to this fascination with what caused all of the diseases of aging, not just cancer, but Alzheimer's disease, cardiometabolic disease, immune weakness, all of these things that have become the biggest causes of death for people today. That drove me into science. So I studied the biology of aging with a focus of stem cell biology, got a PhD there. And what struck me is that in the early aughts, late 90s, as I was getting into this field and, and this field of studying the biology of aging, what makes an organism age and get sick was kind of coming into its own. There were tons of discoveries being made. So we now have 80 different ways of extending the healthy lifespan of a mouse by preventing these multiple diseases that would kill the mouse, mostly cancer. And almost none of those discoveries were taking that jump from academic research to translational biology. So instead of staying in academia, I was like, okay, I have to figure out how all of my peers who are making what I think are these fundamental life-changing discoveries, why are they not translating those things? And what I heard is that VCs and pharma companies were saying, oh, well, you can't run a clinical trial on aging. Therefore, go back to the bench playing with your mice. So that led me to ultimately create the first venture firm building companies around this aging biology theme after figuring out how we could develop drugs there and get into that in a second. And ultimately, starting that firm led me to say, okay, well, this is working. Let's do something bigger, better, and longer term, which became Cambrian. Awesome. And James, let's talk a little bit about just your own entrepreneurial journey and what got you interested initially in entrepreneurship and then taking that next step. And also what you know fundraising 1.0 was versus where you are now and the evolution of that process for you. Sure. To me, I've just always liked talking to people about stuff that I was excited about. And that felt like the core of how I've sort of tripped into this entrepreneurial journey. I did, as I mentioned, get fascinated with the idea that this aging biology research would have to get translated at some point, and that would probably live within a company. 
I actually started my first company when I was 21, not a drug development company, but I knew I wanted to build these skills at some point. So I started a biotech education company. It was actually the first biotech to raise money through the Kickstarter platform back when that was just starting up. And we taught kids how to do PCR and cloning by sending pipettes and PCR machines around to high schools all around the country. So that was kind of like my first little look. We didn't raise any funding for that. That was bootstrapped. And I like ran it out of the lab that I was working on with the money that I was making from washing glassware. And so that was kind of the start for me. But as I then finished my PhD, I spent a little bit of time at McKinsey in their biopharma group. And that's where I hatched this idea, you know, basically of how to take this aging biology work and turn it into a real biotech company. And the key there is basically you can't run a clinical trial for aging. That would be a prevention trial, right? Like a primary prevention cardiometabolic disease trial is barely done at all in the modern pharma, certainly not done by biotech startups, certainly not done with preclinical assets as the main indication. And so I basically came up with a way of coming down to mechanism and then finding the right indications to match each of these aging biology assets with. And then I just started talking to people about it. And so I didn't really set out saying, I'm going to start a company around this. I just started saying, hey, I think this is a strategy that the field should pursue. And through friends of friends, I got matched up with a couple of investors who were like, we want to put money behind aging biology. We don't know how. We heard you have some ideas. I met with them basically to give them advice on how to create a set of companies. And at the end of you know a few interactions, they were like, could you move to Germany and start a fund for us to execute on this strategy? And like, I got, you know, pulled by my shirt collar towards entering that entrepreneurial route. On the fundraising side, I started out extremely naive here. Luckily, I had a couple of partners who had done this before in tech companies, but for biotech, it was very different. And I think it was really just finding people who believed in me as a founder and believed in the arc of this field of medicine becoming important. But then kind of fast forward to now, the fund that I started has raised over 200 million. Cambrian has raised 160 million as a company, more than 200 million for our group of companies. And where we are now is just like a much more sophisticated story built on like how we can actually build value at every point in a biotech ecosystem. But still, and I think most importantly, with that really strong North Star of a mission that is not just a three-year or five-year get phase two data and sell it kind of mission. But like, here's why this kind of drug is going to be one of the most important things to happen to our society, our civilization in the first half of this century. And here's why I have purpose to come into work every day and to be working on this. That's the core of my fundraising experience. And I've been so fortunate to have a group of people who've wanted to invest in me and in that vision and believe it themselves and have been extremely supportive. That's great, James. You wear a number of different hats, and I imagine there's quite a bit of context switching within any given day for you, whether it be administering the fund, being CEO, or sitting on a couple of boards. I'm curious how you structure your day to make sure that you're present and giving your all in each Mm -hmm. of those different contexts. Well, luckily, the fund that I started back in Germany, I have no involvement there anymore. They have a full team and are successful with me not participating in it at all. But in my role as Cambrian CEO, yeah, there is like this hat switching from really being the the chief evangelist of the company to being a scientist to being like a people manager, I think would be my three biggest hats now. And the toughest switch is that hat one involves really 
letting my heart out and like being excited about, oh, this is the potential for this thing. This is where we're going. This is like the direction of travel for these assets. And then hats B and C really revolve hyper bear case risk management across a whole pipeline, right? Issue spotting saying, okay, how can we test to see if we're really really right? And how can we design an experiment to figure out if we're wrong over and over again on the science side, but then also on the people management side, making sure we're getting the absolute best and that I can be a force for increasing the operational excellence of the company and make sure we don't make optimistic assumptions that trip us down into what is my ultimate nightmare, starting phase two or phase three programs and drugs that aren't going to be ultimately successful. And so The way that I organize my day is basically I block time between hat one and hats two and three, usually whole days. Today, not as an exception to that. It was like morning was hats two and three, afternoon is hat one. Got it. Great. And thanks for sharing that. I'm always curious about how folks work and what learnings there are in terms of driving efficiency across how we all work. Switching gears a bit. You know, being the founder and CEO of a biotech can be a bit of an emotional roller coaster, given the inherent risk that's involved in drug development, and also just keeping in mind why it is what we do. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you manage the emotional aspects of that, and if there's any particular insights around how that then translates to how your team thinks about risk. Interesting. Well, I would say the best thing about managing my emotional parts of this is that I've pulled together an executive team at Cambrian who are all way smarter than I am on a number of different key issues for the company. And like when I get anxious about something happening, I can just talk to one of them and be like, hey, I'm worried about this thing. And usually the answer is, oh yeah, well, we've already thought about that. And like, here's the solution that's coming up or coming down the pipe. You just didn't know about it yet, but we already solved that problem. I think this has been mostly in the last year or so that this has really started happening with Cambrian and has been a huge weight off of my shoulders. The other side of that coin or the other part of that aspect is that Cambrian's COO and CFO, Juliette Hahn, was a mentor of mine before she joined Cambrian. So she was basically my mentor at McKinsey, who said, James, this aging biology thing is something kind of interesting. She went off and worked at hedge funds and like ran these multi-billion dollar investment vehicles. And then years later, I came back to her as I was starting Cambrian. And I was like, Juliet, can I get you to put your Harvard bio PhD to better use than in the hedge fund world? And she said, yes. And so I have this partner in crime thinking about the overall business and strategy with me every day. And I think that's massive. So that's the high level thing. And then the only other piece that I would mention there is that a fundamental principle of Cambrian, we haven't talked much about the business model yet, but we're a biotech company that creates new companies with individual, mostly academic founders, but sometimes even acquiring small biotech companies that live as subsidiaries under Cambrian, but we run all of the R&D centrally. So we hold the assets at different subsidiaries, run the R&D centrally. A really important cultural dogma or cultural paradigm that we instituted early on and was, in my mind, the biggest thing we had to get right for Cambrian to succeed as a business was the idea of setting a milestone of a clear go or no-go decision for each asset that we would move forward on preclinical and clinical stages, and then celebrating as a success meeting that milestone, whether or not it was 
supporting or refuting the hypothesis. When you talk about like the translation into the culture, the fact that we've been successful in building into a Cambrian's culture the idea that we can celebrate a no decision on an asset because we've saved ourselves a lot of time, energy, and money by not going forward with this idea that we thought was really great and still was you know a worthwhile hypothesis to go after. That's actually been key thing for me of like getting the engine to turn over in this really productive way. Mm. Making sure that failure when approached the right way can be taken as a success. Exactly. Right. That like the worst thing that can happen, something I see all the time in early stage biotech companies is experiments are designed to show an upside case, but to mitigate or blur a downside case where there's a clear go decision, but there's not a clear no-go decision. And those no-go decisions that say, all right, well, we have to change our fundraising story. We have to figure out how to keep this asset alive. And like the idea that you can structure a clear go and a clear no-go and then make those no-go decisions is actually such a big cost saver and a big operational hack for Mm. a pipeline of of drugs. Mm. Great point. And now, James, switching gears a bit again, you talked about you know when you were chatting with folks from Big Pharma a couple of years ago, it was taken as like a cool science experiment, what you had been learning about mice and aging biology. Talk to us about how perspective on aging has changed over the years and what you're hoping happens over the next decade. I think there's been two major shifts, and I've gotten to at least ride along as both of these shifts were happening and maybe even kind of contribute to some of this to the small extent that I have been. Shift number one has been a mechanistic categorization of the changes that go on as we age. And so in the early days of this field, there was just this idea of like, oh, well, you can restrict calories in a mouse and then the mouse lives longer cool. But is that translatable to humans? Not really. It's just sort of a neat science experiment that you can measure all of these things that change with caloric restriction. But now, starting around 2013, when there was a cell paper called The Hallmarks of Aging that was kind of like trying to create a unifying theory of all of the different mechanisms that deteriorate as we get older and as our biological systems break down. And that sort of created a mechanism by mechanism roadmap for drug development, where we could say, all right, now it's not about slowing aging. It's about finding some upstream mechanistic cause that predates or presages a disease, and then saying, all right, which of the categories of those mechanisms can not just be a preventative for that disease, but also be a treatment? That can either halt the progress or even reverse the damage and reverse the progress of a specific. And I think that framing is probably the number one most important change that's just represented academic progress in the last decade that has turned this field into something that's like really ripe for modern drug development. Then the second one that has been a really important kind of point for Cambrian is that when I got into this field, everyone talk would talk about aging in terms of like these sociological principles of like, oh, well, should we make humans immortal? Or, you know, is it worth it to extend life or something like this? And I find those to be completely distracting questions that miss the scientific reality, which is that this new category of drugs and this 
focus area of research offers the possibility not to stop people from dying, not even to extend life, so to say, or at least not in a way that's different from a cancer drug or an Alzheimer's drug. The technically correct way of framing these types of medicines would be we could have access to multi-disease preventatives, right? So like a statin, but instead of just helping prevent cardiovascular disease, you could prevent diabetes, you could prevent multiple different types of cancer, immune weakness, bone weakness, frailty, all of this category of things that come down to a smaller number of shared mechanisms. And I think that's such a fascinating idea for us to explore as a biotech and pharma industry that like reframing it that way is like, this is now realistic. It's not going to make people immortal, but it might be a substantial preventative for a number of different diseases that are the major killers in people today. And so I think those two reframings are what made the field on a whole appealing, but also Cambrian in particular, an interesting company. Great. And so let's talk about Cambrian and where you guys are from a development perspective and just what your approach has been to drug development. Sure. We, we touched a little bit about the business model piece here of that we usually partner with scientists that have made some fundamental breakthrough. And then as we get interested in that mechanism, we pull that science out of a university or there's a small company that we kind of take a majority stake in and develop a translational R&D plan with that group. On the whole, the kind of sweet spot for us there has been hit to lead stage programs. And there's like an interesting dynamic is that most academics think that they you know, have something that's really close to being ready for the clinic when they have in vivo data in a mouse, which takes an enormous amount of work to generate. So I can see why they would think that. But with medicinal chemistry, plus like all of the sets of experiments that you want to do to really make sure you have the right candidate and to go into IND, we tend to take a slightly slower approach to the maximum possible speed of taking a tool compound and rushing that into humans. And so we get on board with these kind of in vivo validation of a mechanism. We've got a really nice tool compound and then start with MedChem there. Move that forward over about three years on average mm-hmm. to a candidate and really build a robust case for this. So Cambrian currently has 15 drugs in development, including eight candidates. So we're uh, three years old, so that kind of matches up. And then one program that's moving into a phase 1B later this year that we haven't announced yet. Awesome. That's a bunch of exciting progress in a relatively short period of time, James. What have you unlocked in terms of being able to progress a bunch of assets quickly across inflection points at Cambrian? So it's interesting. I think as an industry, we are preoccupied with how to rapidly advance milestones. And that is a pretty decent preoccupation to have for obvious reasons when you're operating in an industry that has ticking IP clocks. But I think just as important is doing the right work and doing it cost effectively to move those milestones forward, which is actually, I think, where we as an industry do a really poor job with two and three. Well, as a whole, I think people are getting better and better at number one. And so Number one is probably the obvious things that are not particularly unique to Cambrian, which is like for medicinal chemistry, you use modern AI tools, you know, you use great CROs and deep expertise to like get your IND enabling work done, partner with academics who really understand specific mechanisms and specific diseases to like work on in vivo validation 
models. And like that kind of stuff can be done on its own. The bigger innovation to me is around how much do you work on a drug before you green light it going forwards? I think, you know, there's a tension where pharma probably does too much. Series seed and series A biotechs in general, I think do too little. And so we're somewhere in the middle between those two. And then how do you minimize spend on this? And so one of the things that I'm most proud about, and I'm happy to give some numbers behind it, is that like on average, we'll take a program from HIT all the way through IND for less than $10 million, all in, including employees and, and full costs there. And so that notion of how cost-effective we can be for a program is, I think, really what sets the Cambrian business model apart from what I'm seeing elsewhere in the industry. Yeah, that's interesting and compelling, particularly given where the biotech sector currently is. And we've gone through so many cycles of ups and downs across our sector, and we're certainly rebounding a bit. But I think that's really compelling in terms of spend to get to these inflection points. When you first started raising capital for Cambrian, I'm sure there were a lot of naysayers around aging biology. How did that message evolve specifically around the work that you were pursuing at Cambrian? It's strange for me to reflect on that because, you know, as we talked about right at the beginning, I've spent my entire adult life fascinated with this field of biology. So for me, like every single year has been a transition from being like more crazy the year before to less crazy today in the eyes of other people. And so I've spent my entire life being told, oh, this is an like an idiotic pursuit. Even my grad school mentor, who was interested in aging biology himself, when I had laid out the plan that I wanted to do as a grad student, he was like, this is really interesting, but we're not going to work on any aging stuff like that in my lab. So like, never talk to me about this again. And so when I started my company before Cambrian, the funds before Cambrian, there was a lot more skepticism. There was no industry around translating discoveries from aging into biotechs. But now that we've built the playbook for that, whilst it's still out of scope and still uninteresting to some people, there are a ton of long-term-minded investors who are like, this is going to be a huge topic. We just need to find the right business model for it. And it looks like Cambrian has that right business model. And so I've been so heartened by the supporters we have, whereas just like in every entrepreneurial venture, you're going to get way more no's and way more of this is stupid's than yeses. That's not unique to aging biology. And so I'm mostly just grateful for the yeses. And those yeses are increasing every single year. And so you know, given your approach as a single asset approach in terms of development versus you know a lot of the platform approaches that we've been seeing, talk us through your own mental model and pros and cons of each approach and what advice you would provide entrepreneurs as they think about making that decision? So my mental model here is that as an industry, we have been addicted to platforms for the last, let's say, at least five years during this kind of last cycle, but maybe even for the last 10. And there are some companies that really need to be a platform and really give the justification for investing hundreds of millions of dollars preclinically on a single IP platform like Moderna, CRISPR, the CRISPR companies, like these come to mind as platform ideas that are so interesting and powerful that it's clearly, I'm not going to say clearly, but it's worth the risk reward is right for investing in those programs. But what we saw, especially over the last five years and this massive spike in IPOs that happened in 2020 and 2021, 
was a number of programs that I would describe as single hypothesis plays, a particular mechanism with a new way of building a drug or a set of drugs targeting that mechanism that said they were a platform, but I tend to call them pseudo-platforms. They're really more of a pipeline of drugs with a, tied together with a single hypothesis. And I think the amount of capital that has been spent on these binary risks for these pseudo-platforms is a big reason for the pop in the biotech because there was hidden risk that investors and sometimes even the entrepreneurs and management teams didn't appreciate there. Cambrian's view, again, back to kind of the overall framework, my view is that most drugs that are going to be developed do live in this single hypothesis bucket. And my fascination is how do you create a company around those single hypothesis assets that represent the majority or at least the plurality of all drugs to be developed? And I think that two good models live in my head. One is in an asset-centric model that is really just going to go for partnering-based exits. Build up a model, start really, really early with pharma partnering conversations, and look for a liquidity event that way. I think that's the old-school model of doing early-stage biotech, and I think it's still a good one. And then the second one, I think, is more where Cambrian is going, which is if you want to be, at some point, an enduring R&D company that lists publicly, you need a pipeline of assets that are not correlated with each other, united by some thematic, in my view, mechanism-based theme, because most assets are going to be pulled out at preclinical stages. So you want preclinical expertise that unites your assets. And then you get truly a multi-shots on goal approach that allows you to be a real platform made up of these single hypothesis assets that live underneath them. And so that's, I think, the model that's going to emerge out of this downturn as the successful way for maturing assets that are invented at universities across our ecosystem. And so, James, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you to reflect for a minute on all that you've learned along the way. And given the insights and opportunities you've had, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? This is always a tough one because I strongly subscribe to the view that, you know, even though I have made tons of mistakes at every stage in my career, going back and putting myself, you know, in the mindset with the knowledge that I had at each of those points, it's like, okay, yeah, I would probably make the same or at least a very similar decision again. And so the thing that I feel I have grown and changed with the most, especially over the past few years, is a dramatic appreciation for experts who live within a company fully aligned with the management to run external collaborations. And that's like a very mm. general thing. So like, let me bring that to life a little bit. Because a huge mistake that I made early on in my career was saying, all right, I can be the CEO of this company, it can have one employee, and I can pull in some consultants and some CROs and like direct them to run a set of experiments and like manage a bunch of tasks. And then I'll interact with them a few times a week and make sure that, you know, people are delivering. And every time I did that, it failed horribly. And so bringing in talented people who know the experimental work that your contract research organizations, that your consultants are doing as well or better than they do, at least at a strategic and high level, and have those people directly managing those relationships being fully aligned with the company. 
And mm. to me, that's a part of that secret entrepreneurial sauce of getting the biotech industry to really push forward with positive momentum. I think there's sometimes an over-reliance on consultants to take leadership roles within a company. And that I've just never seen that happen. But a consultant who's given the right context with an internal champion can yeah. be a massive boon and really accelerate things forward. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that hub and spoke model of how we operate, because I don't think anyone is necessarily arguing for C-suite to be consultant-based, but I think there's a lot to be said around how we leverage you know, fractional labor in a much more intuitive way that other industries have, have already adopted. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Well, James, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for sharing your insights and wishing you and your colleagues at Cambrian continued success. Rahul, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.